Welcome to the third NAB Silicon Valley podcast. Today we sit down with Michael Johnston and Kevin Kajowski of Menlo Equities to talk a little bit about their backgrounds and how they got into private equity. So without further ado, welcome to the third podcast. Thanks, Brett. Happy to be here. Well, uh, a few of our um, members and listeners know you, many don't. So let's get into a few questions to get to know you guys better. Michael, your partner now, how'd you get into commercial real estate? You know, it's a funny question. I couldn't tell you the exact answer. Um, real estate is something that I was always drawn to, even as a kid, uh, super interested in the residential markets, like going back to probably when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. Uh, so it was an interest I pursued when I got into college. I interned at what were a couple of great companies at the time, Grubb and Ellis, uh, General Growth Properties, um, both now defunct, uh, ran into troubles during the GFC. Yeah. Um, for, and then actually started at Menlo, uh, coming right out of college about 15 years ago. Uh, so I guess third time's the charm, uh, and uh, <laughs> still here today. That was awesome and remarkably concise. And you did the prior experience in Chicago, or uh, yeah, in Chicago and actually in uh, Portland, okay. Oregon, which has been uh, you know people in Silicon Valley probably don't see it as much, but Menlo has done a number of investments in the Pacific Northwest over the years. Yeah, so I've actually gotten to collaborate with some of the folks that I worked with 20 years ago. Or, 19 years ago back at Grub. For sure. I got to play 50 more questions on those different markets because you guys have spread your wings quite a bit. Um, Mr. Kajowski, how'd you get into the uh, commercial real estate game here? Yeah, it's uh, kind of a, a unique uh, journey for me. I started out uh, actually as an architecture major at university and had worked at architecture firms really out of high school and right through college. And uh, Decided to change my major to finance in my senior year. Just decided I uh, uh, wanted to pursue something that might be more equally, economically rewarding than, uh, than architecture. And funny enough, found my way into banking, uh, then moved on to a firm, Arthur Anderson, where I was doing consulting and auditing. Um, and ultimately uh, went to work for a client company in, of all things, sports merchandise in Europe. Well, we ended up selling that business off. And when I came back to the States, I was talking to some of my uh, former colleagues at uh, Arthur Anderson, who had all moved on to a company called uh, Starwood Hotels and Resorts Worldwide, led by uh, one Barry Sternlich. Yep. And uh, knew not a whole lot about true business of real estate, but obviously had an attraction from the days of designing buildings and working with uh, clients and tenants around that. So got involved in hospitality and geez, that was around 2000, 2001, I believe. And uh, yeah, that was my first foray in the real estate. And you actually helped build the Four Seasons up in San Francisco in that capacity, correct? That was at Starwood, yeah. yeah. I oversaw on the finance development side the construction of the St. Regis San Francisco, which was, yeah, hotel uh, with, I think there were 110 residential condominiums on top of it. So that was a, quite an undertaking in the mid, uh, our first uh, decade of the 2000s, 2004, 2006. And at some point, uh, there was another hospitality company, and then you made it to Menlo at this point how long ago? Uh, so I started here in November 2011, so okay. it's, uh, yeah, just been over 10 years. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that's right. I was at Starwood through 2008 and uh, was, you know, asked to move to New York and then another opportunity with a private equity group who owned a portfolio of hotels uh, based in San Diego. Yep. Um, asked me to come and be their CFO. And so this was right at the uh, 
start of the GFC, so those were interesting days in hospitality, <laughs> and uh, I always say I, I earned my second uh, MBA working on that portfolio, and then that led up to eventually uh, the opportunity which came to me uh, through Russell Reynolds, a headhunter firm, yep. uh, to come to Menlo, and I met Henry and Rick. And that got, uh, that got you ready for COVID is what it sounded like in terms of shocks to the system. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one of many. That's awesome. Uh, next question. Uh, you guys have all been around for quite some time in different capacities. Do you guys have any favorite projects you've built and why? Can we take that? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, I, well, I think, you know, go up close to the headphone here. Uh, you know, I, I think the one that's sort of been, you know, the most exciting and spanned the most time for us was uh, the campus at 333 Scott. Uh, and, you know, that was a project that, you know, it was really exciting. I think we started it right when Kevin got to the company and it spanned for seven or eight years. Um, you know, we bought a large 30-acre site very early in the cycle, uh, you know, endeavored on, you know, originally spec construction of 450,000 square feet, getting, yeah. getting a construction loan from you, Brett. Um, I, I, I don't know who you're talking about, <laughs> but... Um, um, you know, when, uh, when there was not a lot of spec construction in the market, um, you know, it evolved. We ended up upsizing the project a couple of times, uh, turned something that was going to be, you know, went from 450,000 square feet to over 1.7 million square feet. There was bolt-on acquisitions. Right. Uh, we partnered with Beacon Capital, uh, who's been a terrific partner of ours uh, really over the last two decades. Uh, so was it, a, was it the notion of, like, ground-up development that you really enjoyed, or was it the complexity of kind of this floating chessboard of a site? I, uh, all, all of the above. Yeah. I would say, you know, it was... The fact that there were so many different elements of that project, you know, looped into one thing, um, where it was you know, build to suit, reach share sales, yep. um, uh, you know, capital partner, etc. Well, can't give away too much. We're going to have to have a deal discussion one of these days, and maybe I'll call you guys up again for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I would also say you know another project that was that was really interesting though yeah. actually was the first development project I worked on when I got to Menlo. Which was? And that was 525 Almanor. Sure. And that was a project that we broke ground on basically like the last fourth quarter of 2007. Um, <laughs> Great timing. You can imagine the, uh, yep. the, the delivery timing on that. Um, so we delivered, you know, oh, yeah. in a really challenging economic environment, um, yep. but just you know, continued to work that asset, you know, worked with our joint venture partner, you know, worked with our bank, right. uh, and and you know, I think the most important thing that we've seen time again in Silicon Valley is held on. Yep. Um, and it ended up turning out to be, you know, a, you know, wasn't our very best deal, but was a great deal. And Especially I think given actually, the timing. Yeah. Given the timing, you know, was one of our most exceptional outcomes. For sure. Um. So you know, going through that experience and seeing that from start to finish was really exciting as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Kajowski. Yeah, a, a couple things come to mind. Certainly the development projects that Michael mentioned, um, those were ha all hands-on efforts across the firm, just yep. given the size and the scale of them. And, and any time you get to work with our development partner, Jane, is a great experience. Uh, I'm not sure there's She's any, a legend. Yeah, yeah 100%. anyone that manages uh, <laughs> real estate development, uh, you know, and is quite as spot on with things as Jane. But uh you know, separately, I guess taking a slightly different tack on it, it beyond development, you know, the firm was very much value add oriented and uh, had done a series of development projects when I arrived. And uh, after a couple of years, we put together the idea of could we put together a perpetual open end fund that looked a lot like a, a private REIT yep. with our capital. And uh, so we launched something in 2016. 
Um, after trying to work with some of the investment banks at raising outside money, we just decided to roll up some of our own assets from our value-add funds in an upreach transaction and then went out and continued to raise money and took so, something that you know was roughly around $300 million uh, to today, has a gross asset value in excess of $2 billion. So the creation of that vehicle right. and, and seeing that grow has been very rewarding. Typical real estate guys just pick pick up one stick and brick. You get to do a couple of those, assemble them together, and refinance them, and uh, engineer a new vehicle, which has its own complexity that hopefully we can get into a little later on in the discussion. Yeah, it's become one of the kind of stools of the, or one of the legs of the stool here of the different platforms that we operate. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, in hospitality, there were some great projects, but uh, we were part of the um, La Meridian acquisition, which was a 135 hotel portfolio that we bought based out of London. And so that spanned the globe. And so that was a, a very interesting real estate transaction to partake in, given the players and the time. Did you close that before or after hanging out with Lewis Hamilton at a Formula One race uh, in Monaco? <laughs> that was some time thereafter. But, uh, or actually, uh, it would have been before meeting, uh, meeting Mr. Hamilton. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, that was a, uh, a very unique transaction across several geographies. So uh, yeah. a really neat career experience. Thank you both. Uh, moving onwards, we've got uh, smartest people you've met in the commercial real estate industry and why? Oh, is this one coming to me? Okay. Uh, I think so. Yeah. By default, you got to wait for the awkward <laughs> silence and jump right in. Yeah. I, I mean, it'd be a disservice if I didn't mention both Henry and Rick here at Menlo Equities. Right. Um, you know, their ability to... to uh, manage risk and perf- build a firm that has performed as well as it had over 26 years is one of the things that really attracted me when I came here. Right. Um, obviously, coming from hospitality to what we do at Menlo, which is much more focused on office R&D and, and kind of data center assets and, and no hospitality at all, uh, was, a, was a leap uh, for myself. And, you know, just talking to those in the industry that had previously worked with Henry and Rick, it became abundantly clear that they just did things right. And uh, once I got on the inside, you know, that became, um, you know, something that was very satisfying. And I've learned a tremendous amount, uh, even though some of the other folks that I may have worked with earlier in my career since I've been here at Menlo. So I'd say, you know, Rick and Henry uh, combined and and certainly, uh, um, uh, you know, getting to work hand in hand with them, uh, kind of a... Not not exactly a single person, but I, I guess the the two of them in tandem. Understood. Thank you. Now we've got some younger listeners that are earlier in their careers and aren't principals at private equity firms like yourselves. Uh, if you were to reflect back at age thirty, what are some things you wish you knew then versus where you sit today? Say simply, uh, how lucky we are to be doing business in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I, I, I think as uh, you know, yep. an investor here, uh, you know. Over the last 10 or 15 years, Menlo has expanded, you know, up and down the West Coast and really across the country at this point. And right. Silicon Valley, you know, truly is the most dynamic real estate investment market in the country. And we're blessed every day to be doing business here. No, and just for the listeners to contextualize, I did a quick browse of their website because my knowledge of Menlo dates back a couple of years at this point. But currently on properties, let me know if I'm missing anything here. Texas, Virginia, Georgia, Minnesota, Colorado, Arizona, Illinois, Massachusetts, Tennessee, North Carolina, I think I said Virginia already. Am I missing something? Washington, Oregon, uh, at some point, yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost yeah. had it, yeah. No, but anyways, you guys see a lot of markets, and the fact that you get to participate here, it's dynamic, uh, it's evolving, it's challenging. Got it. 
Yeah, and for me, uh, it was uh, the beauty of the triple net lease. Yeah. <laughs> Having lived in hospitality and worried about uh, occupancy and food and beverage margins and where the group business was coming from, especially after 2008, yep. uh, to be in a business where you, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley, can negotiate 10 and 15-year triple net yep. leases uh, with credit such as Apple or some of these top tech tenants, uh, probably I'd have a few less uh, gray hairs on my head right now <laughs> if I'd known about that earlier. Uh, that's awesome. All right, and uh, I, there's a few more here, but uh, biggest things you've learned working in private equity, perhaps versus your prior lives, anything come to mind? I know that's a super broad-based question. Um, you have any thoughts? Uh, for, for me, and I guess this is applicable in, in, in most any in, industries, but in particular with the success of our firm has been the power and importance of relationships, yep. and that spans the gamut from... Uh, you know, our investors until obviously your colleagues here in the business uh, yep. to our tenants and our creditors and everyone we work with. And, um, you know, the maintenance involved with, you know, cultivating and creating those relationships and then really maintaining them over time. Um, I would say, you know, in particular in private equity, because you're going back and raising capital in successive periods in, in the case of Menlo for new platforms, um, you know, the importance of those relationships and being true to your word is, 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 is something that really stands out. Thank you. Anything on your side, Michael? Uh, I, I was going to say uh, value of relationships and just different perspectives. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact, I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is we have all these different platforms and get to work with partners, uh, you know, that have a variety of different perspectives and yep. investment objectives uh, and being able to learn from them and draw on that information, you know, uh, across our various different investment vehicles. But I think one thing I admire being kind of an external non-private equity person is basically purchasing assets from really sophisticated sellers, saying, am I smarter than this person? Am I really that good? Forming an opinion, doing your research, having conviction and executing, which I'll play 50 questions more down the road on, hopefully mm -hmm. in this conversation, but something uh, as an external viewer of PE, I always wonder how it works. Uh, on your side of the fence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to, to your point, that's also, you know, there's not just one right answer to any problem or yeah. one investment, right? And so much of it's about just, you know, being willing to roll up your sleeves, right? And, and work an asset at the end of the day. And there's, you know, different styles that can e yield, you know, equally successful results, but two people may go about it entirely different way. Fair, but I was more alluding to, like, you have a really sophisticated investor uh, selling something in a market maybe you have or haven't participated on, discerning whether or not basis is appropriate going into this or not, and all the things that can you know go right and wrong, and still not rolling the dice, making an educated and informed decision is something that a lot of people can't do in isolation, let alone repeatedly through different investment vehicles. So hats off to you guys. Um, okay, and so uh, now that we've gotten to know you guys a little better, uh, let's get a little bit more into the history of Menlo. I know we've, we've, we've threw out a few names uh, in Kevin's response to uh, some of the smartest people he's met. But if you can, let's wa walk the listeners through um, Menlo, how it was started, who some of the personalities were, the orientations, just so we can kind of orient the listener and go from there. Yeah, so... So the, the firm was founded in 1994. Um, Henry Bullock and, and Rick Holmstrom had previously worked together at a firm called the Scheidler Group and sure. had taken a couple of real estate portfolios out public um, through the re uh, process in the early 90s. And I believe it was 94, put together Menlo Equities and bought their first uh, real estate property. You know, over time, the firm 
had done a series of syndicated one-off real estate um, partnerships and by the year uh, 2000 uh, determined that they wanted to raise a true closed-end you know blind pool fund um, and launched our first closed-end fund uh, Menlo Realty Partners and now we have grown that uh, we are in the process of closing our sixth uh, value-add fund we, uh, Menlo Realty Partners six sure um, in tandem or parallel to that process um, Henry and Rick invited Jane Vaughn to join the team. I think, believe that was in the late 90s. Yeah, 97. 97. She and came from Cole, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so Jane, uh, you know, in conjunction with Henry and Rick, really kicked off the development side of Menlo Equities. And we've done uh, just over a dozen. I think we're now at 14 joint ventures with more on the way where we've worked with uh, capital allocators as the true development operating partner on typically entitlement and ground-up development type projects. And I think that makes you super unique. And we were having a preamble discussion before we hit record on this, but um, I think a really good thing to contextualize as we talk through different pools of capitals and styles is along the lines of, Michael, what you were saying um, surrounding about, like you're kind of this unique private equity firm in that, in lay speak, you raise pools of capital, you put it out the door, but you also do ground-up development you're also owner-operators. You guys wear a lot of hats that say some other peers don't. So just uh, succinctly uh, walk through those different pools of capital and some, some thoughts surrounding it as we kind of go down the discussion so the listener kind of knows. Sure. So I think if you look at uh, Menlo's business today, there's really four legs to the stool. Okay. Um, you know, as Kevin mentioned, you know, the kind of first, you know, primary line of business is our closed-end uh, value-add vehicles um, where we, you know, invest over basically a, you know, seven to 12 year duration uh, yep. in individual specific properties, uh, discretionary funds. And those are, the, that, that capital is basically pulled uh, high net worth individuals or? Uh, gen- for the most part, yes. Okay, got um, it. And that capital comes mostly from high net worth individuals. Um, and then we have the absolute return fund, okay. which is, uh, you know, about $2 billion of GAV open end vehicle. Um, that focuses on core plus net leased investments. And that's kind of like that open end, I think you might have used the term mutual fund yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, think of it Structures. like a mutual fund that you can, it, it prices on a quarterly basis. Based and, on NAV. Yeah, and yeah. you can invest in it once per quarter. Okay. Um, so you're not actually having to sell the real estate to realize profits on the investment. And those in, the, the, those are institutional investors or individuals too? or They are primarily high net worth Got family it. office investors. Uh, we have one... I believe, institution that's okay. come into that, but most of it's high net worth money. Thank you. And then we have uh, closed-end separate accounts uh, with uh, public pension funds. Okay. And those are, you can think of just kind of in layman speak, like a private investment fund with one large investor. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last but not least, we have our development platform where we're actually functioning more as the operator than we are as uh, you know, the, the equity capital on yep. that. And those are for, you know, large development investments where on a risk-adjusted basis, they'd be too large to go into our closed-end funds. Got it. So you, you for those opportunities, you, you corner the piece of dirt or repositioning of like an asset, then you figure out the capitalization, whether it's another um, private equity firm, your own money. Is that kind of the right way to think about that? Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Very cool. Uh We've already talked about a little, a little bit how you guys got to uh, being partners. Um, let's go back to uh, some of the, the founders and the personalities. Uh, there's, there's Rick Holmstrom, who's around today, and there's a gentleman named Henry Bullock, who 
uh, in prepping for this pod- podcast. A lot of people wanted us to talk a lot more about. Um, we'll keep to this one point, but I think it's very accurate to say he's been around the Valley. He was around the Valley for a long time. Unfortunately, he passed, uh, I think, about a, a year or two ago. Or July something like of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. It was lost felt across everyone in the Valley that kind of does what we do, which is commercial real estate. And um, can you guys just you know reflect back on some of the things you've learned from Henry, uh, you know, given he was such a big icon? Uh, let me just be quiet and listen. Yeah, I'll go first. You know, when I started at Menlo Equities, I was brought on on our ch- as our chief financial officer yep. back in 2011, and uh, you know the firm was just kind of getting started, deploying its fourth fund, and we were coming out of the GFC, yep. and uh, and so I got to work pretty closely with Henry and get his perspective on the use of credit. How did he think about risk in the market, risk in a particular project, um, and I think. One, he had a very good um, innate sense of when to pull the trigger and when to step away. And, um, you know, we had many conversations about transactions as time went on. Um, You know, it looked like there might be a little more to go after in a particular deal, but he was pretty clear, you know, when it was time to make money, you you weren't going to lose any money when you sold something and to pull the trigger. And I've seen <clears throat> throughout my career, particularly when I was at Starwood, whether it was not necessarily for our own account, but could have been other investors that would hang on too long or get, get caught whipsawed by over-leveraging and not understanding the risk of a transaction. And Henry was always extremely thoughtful um, about how we deployed money when and, and, and when to, to step back. And the other thing I'll say is, I mean, Henry was just a very rich personality. Anyone that knew Henry, <laughs> uh, he was... A little bit of the life of the party. Uh, had a wonderful sense of humor about him. A lot of fun on the golf course, if you've ever played golf with Henry. And, uh, you know, we all miss him dearly. It was, a, it was a real shock to the organization in 2019. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're thrilled uh, to see Rick, you know, to continue the firm and, and to have him as our leader now. But, uh, you know, Henry, uh, you know, will always be a, a very big part of this organization and kind of the fundamentals around how we operate, so. Helpful. Michael, you worked with Henry longer than I did. Yeah. I just said, I mean, I think, you know, to echo what Kevin said, I think, you know, his gut sense was second yeah. to none, uh, an approach to, you know, really approach to underwriting risk is something that stuck with me, which I think, you know, continues to permeate the organization and is, yeah. is one of our competitive edges. No, and just um, talking to another gentleman you guys work with, uh, I think it was Max, who was telling me at some point in time, sitting down, doing these elegant Argus runs, and then Henry would ask three questions and immediately point to why something was off, and then just the innate sense of uh, keeping things simple, appreciating how elegant things can be, and executing is something that was done exceptionally well by Henry. Um, and I was shocked to hear he actually studied philosophy, I think it was undergrad or something <laughs> like that, but he, did. he was quite the character. Um, thank you. And so uh, moving onward, we've, we've talked a little bit about the four legs of the uh, Menlo stool that Michael had alluded to, uh, and reflecting back on some of the uh, introductory comments, it sounds like, I'm sorry, were there, there's been six pools of capital? Six value-add funds. Okay. Um, we have then on top of that the big open-ended fund, which yep. is Core Plus. We've done, as of today, 14 joint ventures on the yep. development platform, and we have currently one institutional separate account and we're working on a second one that to close on right now and just for the the layperson who might not you know traffic in 
your area of the world. Can you walk the listeners through what it takes to just raise one of those funds? Typical, um, like if you think of like a time spectrum, T0, you know, you close your fund. What goes into all the stuff before then? How long you have to deploy it and kind of how that works for each of those vehicles with the exception of that open-end vehicle, just so folks can really get a sense of what that process entails. Yeah, I'll start, and then Michael, you can you can fill in the blanks if I'm missing anything here. But uh, you know, we are, we're very fortunate here at Menlo because Henry and Rick had started the business so far back in '94, and we've done so many successful funds and have had you know the success and the track record we have. The actual fundraising process. Um, it's certainly not easy, but we have a set roster of investors yep. who continue to return time after time that we can count on. So going back to those investors and then supplementing that with some of the newer relationships, uh, especially with the wealth that we've seen created here, particularly on the West Coast and Silicon Valley in this yep. last cycle, has given us a large opportunity. So each of our funds, have the value-add funds, have gotten successively larger uh, we've tried to diversify some of that investor base, as we mentioned, with some of the institutional capital through the separate accounts business. Yep. Um, obviously, it's a little bit easier to call capital from one investor and issue one distribution <laughs> check as opposed to uh, dinosaur hunting you know, right 400, there. Yeah, yeah four hundred checks going out <laughs> yep. uh, and fielding various requests. We have a great uh, leader in our business development and investor relations department, uh, Christopher Chang, who we brought over a few years ago from Goldman Sachs. Yep. And so he's really led the efforts on the most recent fundraise for MRP6. Yep. Uh, and then we all are continually engaged in the absolute return fund, which, as Michael alluded to, it literally opens every 90 days. We bring new capital in yep. uh, and we look to deploy. And that's how that fund grows. But, uh, in- you know, I'm sorry, uh, going back to the most recent MRP uh, closed-end vehicle you've raised, you said they've gotten successfully larger. How long, how large, excuse me, is that most recent vintage? Yeah, so we're targeting somewhere around $200 million for this Fund 6. And to sure. give perspective, when we started in 2000, I think the first fund was $35 million. And what's unique about the capital structure is, well, <clears throat> the fund itself might be $200 million. Yep. Then it buys individual investments, obviously, through special pro- separate projects. Um, we then bring half of the equity from the fund, the $200 million, and then allow the fund investors to come in and co-invest in each right. individual project. So look at a K-1, presumably, from that fund as well as that asset yeah, I mean, it's at, the, it's at investors' options to come into yep. the projects. And so that $200 million of equity is technically like $400 million because the other half of the equity would be one-off. And certain investors can take larger size of deals if they particularly like that project when we put it in front of them. And then leveraging that at roughly 60% you know, debt uh, on the projects, that gives us about a billion dollars of buying capacity. And you've had six, well, six of those with granted larger sizes as you've, pro- you've progressed, but you've put large amount of capital out the door. Yeah, I think a total over our history, I think, is just north of $8 billion deployed at our point. My cliche line is, I can't count that high, but it sounds like a lot of money. And Michael, maybe you can talk a little bit about the deployment process after we close the funds and and what that looks like. Yeah, and I mean, so um, you raised this from these individuals, uh, the most recent fund being $200 bucks. Uh, The fund life, though, five to seven years or longer than that? It's, it's, it's 12 years, but they're extendable Got it. Uh, if we've returned a certain amount of the capital sure. and so forth. So the fund can actually go on much longer. But our average hold period in the fund is just around six and a half years. Okay. But as to what Kevin's saying, I think you know, one thing that's important to note is you know, given the fact that those closed-end funds come mostly from high net worth investors, it's a little bit different 
than if you were raising money from pension funds and endowments, which typically have seven-year investment lives, mm -hmm. um, which mean that you know, if you're looking at underwriting a value-add acquisition, you really need to have a three- to five-year business plan oh, really? to allow yourself some cushion to get out of them, whereas it's allowed us to do a number of investments where you know, the value creation opportunity may not come for five to eight years out, okay. um, which allows us to you know, find some opportunities that are more compelling. Okay. And with respect to the cost of that capital, is it is it on par with, you know, uh, separate account stuff? Does it have a different pool of economics because you do have this individual investor base or no comment? I, I think value add, I mean, the definition of value add has changed over time. I mean, you can just look yeah. what interest rates have done over the last... Well, that was going to be another question is how do you think about that in a changing interest rate world? But yeah, 10 or 15 years, right? So, I mean, I think today, you know, we say value add returns on a net levered basis are really in the low teens. Yep. Um, you know, it was probably mid to high teens. Uh, and let, let's define it, value add. It's like the presence of vacancy. This doesn't include like, you know, it's like repositioning, like doing a CapEx, you know, execution, or there might be a lease role. Like how do you guys think about defining market value add as you use that term? So we look at it, uh, you know, a little bit like a barbell approach. Okay. Um, so it's not like it's a hundred percent vacant building. You got to put lipstick on it. You got to remodel the lobby, you got to lease it up, and then you By sell it. By the way, it. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, uh, we are, too, and we certainly do some of those, but, yeah. uh, you know, particularly since, you know, a number of our investors are high net worth backed and are high net worth and, therefore, you know, yeah. are taxable investors, um, you know, we're cognizant of their taxation, and we look at, uh, sorry, let's just, let me. No, I, no, you're good. No, no, so we're talking, we're just talking about the yeah. definition of value add. You were alluding to this barbell approach, uh, the lipstick on a pig, if you yeah. will. Um, and then I was also inquiring about, uh, you know, you can also view value add from like an, you know, an underleased or a, you know, no leasing standpoint, you're buying some vacancy. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, generally speaking, take a barbell approach yeah. uh, to portfolio construction. So we'll buy some stuff that's, you know, mostly vacant, yep. putting lipstick on it, lease it up, sell it. Yep. Um, and then we'll also buy some, you know, leased investment opportunities in those same funds um, that may be, you know, kind of, you know, that 10 to 12% return as opposed to the 15 to 20 yep. uh, to add some ballast. Uh, and in those instances, generally speaking, where we either are looking at opportunities where we think they're, you know, leased at below market rents and over time there's going to be opportunity to market the leases to market, or it could be, you know, a venture-backed technology company that we think is an acquisition target, and there'll be a credit enhancement so, yeah. on the tenancy over the We're next couple cap, of years. We're going to get cap rate compression from yeah. that, yeah. And then, you know, obviously there's, you know, 19 iterations in between that as well, right, yep. where it's a four-building campus so, and one of them is vacant and two of them are leased. And so that's interesting. I mean, I always think of it as this, this big pool where all these assets go in, but, like, what I also heard you just say was, like, there's a degree of strategic view of putting assets into these funds in the sense that you could have um, – uh, maybe net lease, big deal to provide cash flow and almost pops within it, depending on that barbell that you're, you're taking down to get these value pops. Um, is that fair to like you have that, that, that strategic lens for every pool of capital you raise kind of as you place assets in it, there's thoughts and there's discussions internally surrounding that composition for lack of a better term. Absolutely. Got it. Yeah, we have, we have uh, literally built portfolios around that. I think of MRP3 in an instance where we had some outsized vacancy. Yep. We would then, you know, maybe not take something that's at least five or seven years, but would take two or three years until yep. we thought we might stabilize the other one to generate, you know, some kind of cash yield. Yep. And then our investors, you know, would be picking up the depreciation in that off of the vacant asset as well. So right. the cash flow is kind of tax 
tax neutral or not taxable given the outsized you know taxable losses being generated on the vacancy so yeah we portfolio construction is always a consideration and as Michael said, with us having taxable investors. Not to mention, if you have a high net worth person that's like, I've got a really high income year, uh, I want to uh, do a sidecar investment aside from my fund exposure to really double down on some uh, right. <laughs> depreciation flowing off these assets. That's interesting. No, thank you. And I didn't want to go too, too deep down that rabbit hole, but I think people don't know how those funds are raised, how they're put out the door, how they're layered. The, you know, those fund lives seem to be different um, depending on orientations. And then uh, on the flip side from that value add uh, MRP bucket, the open end fund um, is more core real estate. Is that correct? So lower yield expectation. Yeah. Uh, on, on that portfolio, we're targeting a 9 to 10% net return to the okay. investors with, a, with just over 6% coming from, um, from current income, from okay. the, uh, the distributions. And so... Uh, it's lower risk, right? The credit is very high on the tenancy. These are long-term lease. I think our weighted average lease term is just north of or around yeah. eight and a half years. Um, we definitely lever at a lower level with debt. Uh, we're typically in a 40 to 45% range. Um, we've got to provide reserves for liquidity, for redemptions and whatnot. So it's a little bit different philosophy, but it's it's much more akin to constructing almost like a fixed income sure. type of uh, portfolio, those leases being the underlying securities that generate the income for the investors. And it's obviously been, you know, a uh, very attractive asset class here in the last couple of years. And, and, and for us, uh, not surprisingly, but uh, we were very pleased to see how resilient it was through the pandemic. Uh, where I think there was a lot of concern about what could happen to those leases and, and some of these vacant offices where people weren't going in. And so the delineation versus that MRP pool of capital is the duration of the lease, perhaps the credit, the core lo- locations of those assets. And then with respect to the asset types themselves, is it solely office or do you guys, I, I mean, I've seen data center in your guys' world, like how, what other product types are you able to place within specifically so in, that vehicle? Yeah, in, in the core plus vehicle right now, we're, 100% office slash R&D type facilities. Okay. Um, so we don't have any data centers. We have we have the option to include some other asset classes, mm-hmm. but it's just it's not been um, a feature of the fund uh, to date. Uh, I think the other differentiating factor is that it is an entire wholly owned pool of assets. So we do financing very efficiently on a portfolio basis. Rather than single assets. Yeah, we're at, the fund yeah. has actually gotten so large, we're now getting ready to flip out of our secured facility to an unsecured facility, talking about private placements in the bond market and so forth. So you can really, because of the strength of the credit and the term of the leases, really find um, uh, a very interesting uh, option on the on the financing side. Whereas in the value add, we segregate everything into special purpose vehicles, and they have single asset financing. And we do that one because, as I mentioned previously, each ownership structure of those entities is different because the fund owns half of the equity, yep. and then you have different owners that are the co-investors. And so, because of that mix of ownership, you're financing the asset difference. Obviously, higher risk. We typically you know, finance a bit higher towards 60, 65% to cost when we acquire. So different risk profile, different return. Profile. Oh, but it's interesting to like shift from an asset specific, you know, debt orientation to a, f- a fund level for that open-ended vehicle. I didn't appreciate that. And you know, I was going to ask a stupid question, which was, do you guys finance your um, capital commitments? But I guess in the case of the open-end vehicle, that's not applicable. It's only applicable for the MRPs maybe or no? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. Because our investment um, pool has typically been high net worth, it's not like you can go to a money center bank and get yeah. a ra- yeah, subscription line. We are putting, for the first time, a subline on MRP6. We've yep. gotten that through one of the smaller kind of niche lenders out there. Um, but that's not something that we've used historically. In terms of the open-end fund, you have a bunch of term loans you know, tied to the pool, but it also has a revolver component, which makes it, again, very efficient in that you can draw down on the revolver, buy an asset, go raise equity in the next quarter, pay down the revolver, and basically run the fund with no net cash. So. And presumably, you've got some certitude of not having to market your financing. You're just like, hey, as long as it ticks these boxes, it's pre-agreed, we can throw it in and finance it, leverage it from day one. That's right. Yeah. Um, going back to that subline concept, this might be above some listeners' heads. I know some people want to nerd down and hear about this. Um, from folks that have, you know, basically marketed funds, it seems like you have to cut your performance metrics inclusive in omitting the effect of that leverage of the subline. Um, is that correct? Not in our vehicles. No. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, it's, <clears throat> it is, uh, something that we would be very careful with in terms of we, we're looking at actually the sub- subscription line is more of an efficiency play in sure. terms of when we get very active in a quarter we might have three or four deals well that means putting together these spvs one calling capital from the fund two trying to syndicate out to the individual individual investors that co-invest yep the subscription line would allow us then to aggregate all of that capital yep. by drawing on the line and then working through methodically, not under the same constraints of time that you might have on closing the deal, yep. uh, by paying down the subscription line and calling capital. And so that is um, something that we're, we're doing here with this latest fund, um, not so much to accentuate um, you know, necessarily LP returns through leverage or something like that. Yeah, and just for the listeners who might not have directly invested in private equity, jump in if this is incorrect or misunderstood on my part. But like for those $200 million vehicles, individuals make a capital commitment. So unlike the mutual fund thing where you dump your cash in, you're basically saying, hey, I'm committing to a million dollars of this $200 million vehicle. And as they take, as the firm such as Menlo takes down assets, you have to contribute your element of capital. It might not all be at once. You know, day one, they might call. 250,000, you know, a you know, month or two later, uh, another 250,000 or whatever the amount is. And that's uh, essentially just to tie it all together. What Kevin was alluding to, this financing at these um, MRP vehicles aren't to optimize that. It's to simplify in some regards the process of bringing that in. Because if you're dealing with it across however many investors, it can be pretty burdensome, I'd imagine. So. Yeah, both to yeah. The, both to the investors of having to you know raise the funds and put the money in, it, and secondly, right. as you said, administratively to handle on our side. Yeah, so. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, idea generation. So you've got these pools of capitals from core to value add opportunistic to ground up development. How do you guys? Uh, what triggers your appetite for investments uh, or conviction behind a thesis? <laughs> I got a few 50 centers hidden in this uh, line of questioning. Give me a second. No, you're good. I mean, I, I can get us started. And yeah. Michael, you can yeah. chime in. I mean, the data center is a perfect example. Yeah. So historically, over the life of Menlo, we have opportunistically bought data centers and asset class in these closed-end funds, these MRP funds we've been talking about. 
um, probably around three years ago, four years ago, it became very clear to us that you know, data collection and transmissibility and, and um, data storage, all of that was becoming a bigger, bigger piece of the economy. And so um, because we'd been working in data centers on and off over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, the idea came about and we discussed as a team in our investment committee of actually going out and putting a dedicated vehicle together. And so that's what really was the genesis of us reaching out and starting the separate account business through an institutional investor. Um, obviously, there's a lot of momentum. The pandemic helped as well, but a lot of investor interest in that area. Um, you know, another area that comes to mind, Michael, is you can talk maybe a little about, I know when I started at Menlo Equities, we really were basically investors in the Bay Area, Orange County, and San yeah. Diego. And then over time with MRP 4 and 5 really moved into other geographies. So thinking through that question like twofold, kind of like how you bifurcated it with respect to asset class you are investing in and then secondarily with respect to geography i mean i think it's super interesting to overlay that because you have to develop a pretty strong conviction and if it's as simple as like hey we're all reading the wall street journal we think there's this great idea i mean like between that pipe dream and getting you know dollars invested there's a lot of steps and i'm just curious about that thought process so i think from a from a market perspective you know you know, when Menlo started in the mid-90s, you know, our focus was really solely here in Silicon Valley. And really, you know, one of our you know, competitive advantages has been our ability to underwrite risk uh, and understand t- credit tenant. Um, you know, we've never shied away from single-tenant facilities. In fact, right. we, we like them and embrace them. Um, and, you know, as I'm trying to think of the right way to say this is, you know, obviously the technology industry has proliferated, you know, quite a bit over, right. the, over the last 25 years. And so as those tenants grew up uh, and expanded up to Seattle, down to West Los Angeles, to Austin, Texas, to Boulder, Colorado. You're seeing these pockets, yeah. these trends, this to, uh, you know push out of technology. And you're just like, hey, I've seen this playbook before. That's how you kind of get comfortable getting into some of these markets is what you're saying? Well, I, I guess I'd describe it a little bit different way is that we've, you know, we've basically kept doing the same thing we've been doing you yeah. know, since Menlo was founded 27 years ago. Uh, and we've just grown up with our tenants as they've grown up as well. And they, you know, many of these companies were started in Silicon Valley, you know, 30 years ago. And as they needed to go attract uh, more talent, you know, they went up to Seattle, they went, you know, yeah. they headed east. And we're basically you know, utilizing the same playbook over time with them. Okay. That's a really yeah. good point. The other thing I would add to that is with the advent of the open-end fund and yep. the core plus strategy, you know, value-add investing, buying vacancy is a bit higher on the risk spectrum to go into a new market where you may not have the depth of relationships or market knowledge as some of the local players right. can be a disadvantage. And I think what we've really done over the last five years, I think successfully is lever that open-end fund to go in and buy something maybe lower risk, lease to an investment-grade tenant, get our establish our relationships in the market, really understand the dynamics of who's coming, why they're coming, uh, where the growth areas are, and then be able to build out from that some of the value-add activity. Yep. Um, you know, one of our partners recently, uh, Max, who you referred to earlier, has just relocated. <laughs> Man, the myth and the legend. Yeah, the legend. <laughs> he has just moved to Austin, Texas, and that's a perfect example. You know, originally, uh, you know, 
uh, Max, I, actually, he did it in reverse. He did buy a value-add project yeah. in Austin <laughs> to get started. <laughs> that does. sounded so yeah. elegant, yeah. and I'm like, no, I thought there was some vacancy there, but whatever. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, this is, the, this is yeah. actually the outlier. Actually, yeah. It's actually funny. But, uh, and yeah. then we followed for on. six years at below market rents. <laughs> below yeah. market rents. Trees <laughs> grow to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Ten buildings, very sizable. So, yeah, Max yeah. plays a little differently. But at the end of the day. Um, Belongs did, in Texas. Yeah, he, he bought a couple of additional uh fully leased investment grade buildings and then you know has built that out into the southeast into atlanta and northern virginia and yeah. nashville um and as we again plant flags in those markets we think those markets are now ripe for us to uh, pursue both value add and development in certain cases as well joking aside that i mean like there's a certain level of comfortability you need to obtain to basically like say hey we're cool going into you know nashville or Atlanta, uh, especially being from like Northern California, is it as simple as like, hey, we're going to go taste some um, whiskey and check out some music venues and like this is an awesome place or like you're doing a deep dive on like all the statistics of growth, uh, talking to tech, you know, investors, both with respect to the VC community and larger big, big boy and girl tenants to figure out, hey, are you going to be growing there? And is that what gives you comfort in getting into an individual location? Um, Yeah, I I mean, I think we do some of our own, you know, primary research, but we also spend a lot of time talking and leveraging our brokerage connections. And, you know, we'll use our Southern California folks to plug us into Atlanta or Dallas and so forth. So no honky tonks. Right. Well, no, (laughs) those guys are the front line out there. But but that'll get us in. And then we've been patient. We've watched stuff trade. We've watched what leases get signed, who, why, what rate, how that's happening over time. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, if we see something attractive, you know, we'll get comfortable and make a move. And it's a lot easier to make a move on something that's leased nine years to an A-minus credit yep. in the market. And that's why I was saying, you know, many of our forays into some of these other markets have started with a core plus vehicle yeah. as opposed to just going out and buying a big vacant building in the middle of Raleigh or something like that. But rather than helping on cap rate compression or outsized rent growth relative to the national average, you're also overlying, you know, on top of some of those themes you're talking about, this notion of basis, you know, I, you know, I assume in, if you can get into it for the listener, great. But essentially, what am I paying today? If I need to retenant this, what are my dollars that I go into it? How exposed do I feel or not? That's a component of everything you do, presumably, on all these markets across all these buildings and every vehicle that we've discussed or less so in one pool than the other. I, absolutely. Um, it's very different depending what market you're in. Fair. Yeah. But figuring out like what that is for Texas versus Washington versus Tennessee. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's rough. Or, or even submarket specific. Fair. Yeah. yeah. Even within NorCal, it's different for sure. What, what else? No, 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 I mean, no, no, no. Just in terms of like, so you, you. So we're not using like, you know, detailed construction cost estimates for every single. No, but thing. there's this common sense overlay on top of, Hey, what, what is the credit behind this? Is this a growing or shrinking location? And then you can also overlay this notion of which pool capital it buckets into. And to the extent that it's an open life vehicle, if you're a little wrong on timing, you can wait it out if you've structured it appropriately. And it's this notion of kind of like a moving waveform of like, all right, I might, be, might not be getting in at the lowest point, but if I have that open-ended vehicle, I can be a little off and still, you know, get a decent return if I hold on for long enough, especially if you've got nine years of tenure on a lease. Exactly. Or get more spread from a credit perspective as well, sure. right? Like, you know, an Apple lease that maybe a four and a half cap rate in Silicon Valley, you know, you could be getting for five and a quarter cap rate in another market elsewhere in the country in the Southeast. So there's the, the relative value yeah. element of this too. Got it. 
Yeah, I think I think the big one of the biggest driving forces when you think about cap rates is the growth of the rental side of the equation, and you know just be the nature of the markets we invest in typically have outsized growth, certainly relative to sure. the national average, but even the sub-markets relative to the broader MSA where we're investing. And so, you know, how a market gets on the map for us is, you know, what is our projected expectations of baseline rent growth over, over time? Got it. And so if you look at it in Austin and, and you see limited land, you see the types of players that are going and what they're signing for and what the trends are, it's pretty clear that you're going to potentially outperform, you know, from my home city, Detroit, or something <laughs> like that, just because, you know, what's going on there. And so yeah. many of those markets, you know, find their way to the top of the list for us to spend time, you know, working our relationships and looking for opportunities to deploy money. And, you know, fortunately, the the, the core, open, core plus open-end fund has been a good way to get in initially. And now uh, I think, and Michael, you can comment on this, I think, probably at least half of the deals we've done in MRP6 so far have been outside of uh, California, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. correct. No, I, I mean, just looking at your website, seeing where you guys have invested, it's, it's stunning. I mean, you guys have exploded across the U.S. Yeah, I think, believe it or not, right now, I think they're, from a square footage perspective, at least our largest market's Northern Virginia. Yeah. And that's a combination of a couple of defense contractor plays we've made there over the okay. last 18 months, and then just all, and then data centers. Obviously, that data center market is larger than really the balance of the country combined. <laughs> you get close to the NSA, and it's funny how many data centers now. That's awesome. Uh, and so we, we've talked a little bit about the different styles, different pools, different tenants, orientations, the like. Uh, something I think about a lot in my day-to-day is, you know, there's replacement costs, but even more simply, like where interest rates are heading. How do you factor that in internally to your, you know, investment theses, DC? Is that, is that the right word? Um for these different markets, I mean, the example that you provided on Apple credit trading at four and a half, four and three quarter here versus a five or whatever that spread is, do you guys have a margin of safety on top of that? Do you, do you mitigate the concept of rate risk in some way, a portfolio level or an individual asset level? And then the last dimension to make this super complicated is from an investor return standpoint, where do you see things going over the next 24, 36 months? I mean, I could speak yeah. just quickly about interest rates. I mean, yeah. uh, for us, uh, you know, obviously financing plays a huge role in, in real estate, and we do take a position as a firm internally about where are interest rates today, where are they likely to go, and why. Sure. Uh, and so depending on the risk uh, profile of the individual investment, you know, we have either hedged or bought caps from time to time and used derivatives to, to manage some of the interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in very interesting times right now. I think the 10-year <laughs> moved another 20-some basis points today. Yep. So, uh, you know, war in Ukraine and, and inflation and a Fed that is beginning to raise interest rates and unwind its massive balance sheet puts a whole lot of variability into where those rates will go. So we're probably in a more defensive posture when we think about interest rate risk. Certainly on the core plus vehicle, we're taking that approach because we have long-dated leases. and. Yep. You know, it's a more of a permanent capital vehicle. On the value add stuff, we really kind of take it on a project by project basis, and 
typically put variable rate debt on and and will you know put some type of hedge on if if we think it's warranted yeah. for whatever reason. Um, I would say we do that less so on the individual SPV uh, financing so than the portfolio of something like the open end or perhaps a construction project that could be constructed over several periods and we won't find a tenant until you know 36 48 months from now. So that would be a different thought about you know what do we want to do from an interest rate protection standpoint. I think on the de- development of value add you're really looking more at what's my exit cap rate and what's my terminal value going to be right. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're fundamentally as you talked about before Brett looking at basis. Right. And uh, you know if you've messed up on the basis and where, what your point's going to be, <laughs> right. that, that, it uh, matters. Yeah, that's going to matter a lot yeah. more than yeah. if uh, you know your spread is three, you know, three hundred basis points or four hundred and twenty-five basis points overall over sofer. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think, um, and I'm going a little little off for a little prescript that you guys listening can't see here, but uh, especially with that view of creeping inflation, seemingly imminent, like rate increases for the foreseeable future. What's the catalyst to make a big bet? And I'm thinking of what you guys are doing uh, over uh, Ross Road, uh, as well as you've also assembled a block directly across from the 49er Stadium uh, where you guys can build, I think it's over a million square feet or something like that. Uh, when do you decide to hit go and what's the logic on let's just take two of those deals? So let me... Uh, let you know, small about, deals, yeah. million square feet, bigger yeah. than some, some yeah. sub-markets. Well, well, let me talk about Ross. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that, you know, internally we have a perspective that there's going to really be a flight to quality over the next couple of years. Sure. Uh, you know, we may be biased. Obviously, we're office investors, right? So we think yep. people are coming back to work. Um, you know, but we've seen the benefits of that, you know, in our own office here as we've brought folks back over the last plus or minus six months. Yep. Um, and, you know, with Ross, you know, we were watching what was happening to availability last summer in Sunnyvale and Mountain View uh, and, you know, hearing you know, the rumors of te- various tenants, you know, right. large tenants out in the market. Um, and, you know, really, it fundamentally came down to, you know, where do you find nine acres in central, sun- in northern Sunnyvale? There aren't so, a lot, yeah. Yeah, it's the last place or, yeah. or one of the very last sites. Um, and so I think for us, you know, looking at those users, you know, predominantly the fangs that are driving the Sunnyvale market, you know, so much of it is about, you know, attracting and retaining talent and getting talent to want to come back to the office. Right. And uh, I'm trying to think what the right way to say this is. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it felt to us that on a risk-adjusted basis, actually, that there's a lot more likelihood of being able to you know, attract a tenant to that site than, right. than something where you're maybe you're buying, you know, some 30- or 40-year-old buildings, uh, you know, in North San Jose that are in need yep. of a rehab where you're putting lipstick on them. For sure. And from from a macro perspective, I tell you what you're saying, but like the, the thing I always think about too is like these are all big uh, steel, glass, high expense sort of, you know, buildings. They're, they're, they're dense. They're beautiful. Um, and in fact, I'd suggest uh, people check out the website. I, I think for the block, there's a website, correct? There is, yes. Okay. Anyways, if you Google the block, I think Greg Von Thaden's the listing yeah. broker. I, I, I don't think... It's not entitled yet, so we don't want to, oh, we don't no, want to be like no, calling no, no, attention no, no, to the no. city in a podcast. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> find out. But, but um, where I was going more with that line of questioning, and we can we can edit yeah. this, but is the notion of increasing construction costs. I mean, I remember talking to um, people that execute in the Valley, too, that have built basically carbon copies of buildings and talking about inflation exceeding 1% per month. 
um, in big you know campuses as they roll through buildings. Um, and you mentioned it earlier, but basis matters, and basis is a direct consequence of predominantly land value, sticks and bricks you're throwing, the cost of those. And with them going up, do you have some faith that you can deliver those, you know, sticks and bricks, if you will, for an acceptable basis? Or are you guys still just waiting for kind of the dust to clear before you guys, you know, go on both of those? So I guess I'd say, I mean, I think, you know, construction costs are something that we are, you know, yeah. very focused on right now. Yep. Um, and, and I think, you know, you're right. I think if you were to look at when we built, you know, our campus at Santa Clara versus today, you know, costs, Gene yep. would tell you, have gone up, you know, 8 to 10% per annum on a compounded basis. At least, yeah. Um, other than just to say that, like... No, 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 no. No, and I think the 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 trap you know we get stuck in is like basis is basis, and through all these different cycles, like what are you paying? But then I think the part we don't appreciate is where our rents going. And if you really think you're in an inflationary environment, you know what do Class A rents for users locally go to? And I think there's some merit to that argument to get around like where you see you know construction costs going. I, I, I guess I would just say you know what I would offer is you know. We made a number of kind of flight to quality investments in our yep. last two closed-end vehicles, and we made a number of value investments in our last two closed-end vehicles. Sure. The, the flight to quality investments yep. uh, that every time felt like we were kind of pushing the edge on the numbers uh, and felt a little, I felt a little squirmish on them for them, yeah. ended up being the best deals in those last two funds. Sure. The 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 value investment where, hey, I'm going to be the low-cost provider, yep. you know, I can undercut everyone in the market. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't pan out gen, as good gen, as you gen, think. Generally yeah. speaking, I mean, you know, there, there were no dogs, but they were yeah. you know, the deals that we had to work the hardest uh, and didn't turn out exactly how we anticipated. Um, and if you, so, No, no, understood. And so tying it back to Ross, are, are you guys actually going vertical on that right now? Because I know you guys, you guys purchased it. Yeah, um, we, we, we plan to break ground on 420,000 square feet okay. uh, in September. Okay, and if the listener wants to learn more about that, is our website up on that particular project or no? Soon. Soon. Yeah. Okay, more good news to follow there. Yeah. Um, back it, to your. It's, it's a private offering still, so don't play. Okay, no, fair enough. Um, no, appreciate that. Uh, any other kind of parting thoughts, comments, reflections on private equity, your guys' careers, the economy uh, that the listeners might find interesting or compelling? Yeah, I just think we're in a really interesting time right now uh, in the sense that we're coming out of the pandemic. People are trying to figure out how they're going to use the real estate footprint they have and where they're going to. I I think we're obviously very big believers in our markets and in the need for office in those markets. Yep. Um, But Michael used a term there. I think that's really important, which is a flight to quality. We think a lot of the demand is going to be for high-quality buildings with a lot of amenities and things that get the workforce, whether it's flexible or yep. full-time, comfortable uh, coming back into the office and, and seeing, uh, you know, some type of return to normalcy. So I think, you know, having to work through that situation as it develops over the next several quarters and seeing, you know, how quickly people come back and so forth is very interesting for us. Right. And then separately, as I alluded to earlier, we just have a lot of volatility in capital markets, Yep. just where we are economically and uh, some of the 
the headwinds or um, events that seem to have manifested themselves here in the last couple of quarters. There's been a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Say the least. No, and to think you've got to put money out the door through all that stuff in different locations. Hats off to both you guys. It's not an easy uh, task. And so um, I'd say in, in kind of winding down here to the extent listeners want to learn more about Menlo Equities, uh, best resource, presumably MenloEquities.com? Yeah, we have a website, MenloEquities.com, okay. uh, and the way to contact us is on there. So I think that's the, the best way to try and uh, reach someone here at the shop. No, appreciate it. Thank you both for making the time. Really appreciate it. Hopefully listeners get something uh, good, insightful, different uh, out of this. So uh, appreciate it. Thank you both. Great. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Brett.